gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To those looking for signs, it is a stumbling block. To those looking for wisdom, it is foolishness. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul goes on and says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Today we're going to be looking at why the cross is so central and important to us. Can I just give one extra notice? Tonight we have our prayer and communion meeting just held in the parlour in the little small room uh, around the side there. That will be at 7.15. We usually have a leadership meeting at 6 o'clock, but there won't be one this evening. A lot of people have been very busy, and I believe half the people are away. Actually, half our leaders are away this weekend. So um, that won't be a leadership meeting at 6, but there will be seven, prayer and communion at 7.15. Well, <clears throat> God's big story, number 25. Can you believe that? <laughs> We've been going. It's got to be one of the longest series I've done. <laughs> Thank goodness other people have preached a few of them. <laughs> When I do a long series, I usually break it up. When we went through Romans, we kind of broke it into smaller sections, didn't we? So we're not just there for years. Um, of course, having grown up in a church where you know, previous pastors had preached on the book of Romans and stayed there for like eight years, it's kind of um, difficult to follow that. You know, When uh, RT was my pastor, he did Bible studies on a Friday night on the book of Hebrews. And I think they went on for about 12 years. Yeah, well, I'm not going to be dissecting every verse in quite the same way, in that sort of thing, as, as Martin Lloyd-Jones. We've been looking at this big picture, and over the weeks we've seen how God's big plan is clearly portrayed through the Scriptures, showing a, a unified biblical narrative and that has four major... If we go on to the next slide, you've got, I found this, this image this week. I thought, this is brilliant. This just describes the four movements of God's redemption story, in a sense. There is creation, uh, the fall, there is redemption, and then restoration. This big picture, this grand narrative of the Bible. That's what we see happening as we read it. And we realise that God is working his plan out, his purposes out. Right? Uh, Storyline goes like this, doesn't it? It starts phase one with creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Right? God had been existing in eternity before, but time and eternity came into existence. Time came into existence when God spoke. And in creation, there is one Hebrew word that in a way sums up for me the picture of creation, and that's the word shalom. Peace means a bit more actually, it means a bit peace and prosperity. Who's a Star Trekker? Go on, 
How many of you are stuck? I can't, I can't do it without moving my fingers. You do that? Oh, that was a natural one. Yeah. See, I was told, and I don't know this is true, but actually this, this symbol that Star Trekkers do derives from the Hebrew characters that mean peace and prosperity. Right? So they're kind of saying, you know, long may you prosper or whatever it is the Star Trekkers say. And they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, being a bit Old Testament-y. You know, <clears throat> well, the earth was a place of peace. It was filled with God's shalom. The kind of peace in which everything works according to God's intention. Right? The world was made for humanity to flourish. Where we could live in joy and in the presence of our maker. Worshipping God by loving him and loving one another forever. But phase two came in pretty shortly, pretty quickly. The fall. And here we have Adam and Eve, God's creation beginning to reject God's rule over them. And we refer to that rebellious choice as the fall because, in a way, they represented all of us. They represented all of humanity and their actions affected us too. And we have, through our own actions and actually through our own thoughts, also rejected God. We've declared ourselves enemies of God. And this rebellion has resulted in physical death and spiritual death. But God had a plan. That's the one thing we've seen in this, isn't it? God has a plan. It didn't catch him by surprise. It wasn't plan B because plan A went wrong. It was always on God's heart and mind to redeem his people. He gave them the free will, in a sense, knowing that they would blow it. And so he always had a plan. God would send his son. When we've seen it time and time, for 25 weeks we've been going through this week by week, how it is, how there it was, he will crush that serpent's head. How it was through that line of Judah. How it was through the choosing of a people. How it was through that setting up of the, of, uh, of the, 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 um, the exodus with the, the, the blood on the doorpost. How it was with the formation of tabernacle and temple worship and the line of kings and a throne that will last forever and the prophets that would speak his word. How it was that John the Baptist prepared the way as he behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here is Jesus, the incarnation, God's redemption plan for mankind. See, this Bible story is not just a load of stories. It's constantly linked together with that scarlet thread, as Spurgeon called it. The blood of Jesus was going to run right through every page of the Bible. And today we're at that place where we just, we're looking at, in a way, the peak of it, this, this cross, where Christ would die. Redemption, phase three, when God, our loving creator, who rightly shows himself angry towards our sin, is determined to turn evil and suffering, which we have caused, into good and for his glory, ultimately. And so this movement of redemption that we see through the pages of Scripture shows God implementing his master plan, redeeming the world and rescuing fallen sinners like you and me. And then the person of Christ Jesus, it reaches its climax. God himself in the flesh, coming to renew the world and restore his 
people. This grand narrative of scripture climaxing in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone say hallelujah. Hallelujah. It should be, shouldn't it? You know, if you actually begin to see, oh, look at the state of the way that world, the world was, but this is our God. What a saviour. My Jesus, my saviour. We should be able to sing that with such conviction. Do you know what? The story doesn't end there with just the redemption part. Phase four is the restoration where God has promised to renew the whole world. And the Bible gives us a peek into the glorious eternal future. (coughs) The restoration of everything that will take place. It will take place in two ways. Christ will come again and judge the world for its sin and its evil. And he will usher in that completion of his kingdom that has already started in our lives. His reign of righteousness and peace. God will purge this world once and for all of evil. And we saw that in a sense last week, looking at the idea of the miracles, the breaking in of the kingdom of God and triumphing over evil. For this purpose, Christ was revealed to destroy the works of the evil one. Well, Christians over the years, I found this little diagram on the internet. There it was, and I thought that just sums it up really well. And there's different kind of symbols there. Uh, and Christians have always used symbols to express their faith. Uh, if you look at the fall there, it's interesting. They've got the kind of golden calf. In a way, I think that's quite an apt symbol, even though it's chronologically quite a period on. But it is that idolatry. You know, we're not going to worship God. We're going to worship ourselves and the gods that we make. And that's how man fell. Well, Christians have always used symbols, like a boat. It's interesting if you look at Christian symbols. Some people are like, what's, what's the boat mean? The boat's actually symbolic of the church. It was where Jesus first met his disciples and is where symbolic of how the church is. And a dove is sometimes used to represent the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe it's a shepherd's crook for representing Jesus, the good shepherd. Or there's the fish, the fish, the ichthus, the declaration of who Jesus is. But no symbol has more of a central position than the cross. Right? We hear people who get sacked because they wear a cross. How many of you are wearing a cross? A few people wear a cross. You know, it's a symbol of our faith, isn't it? And I actually believe it's rather than just knowing what the symbol is or in wearing one or having some ornate cross, it's more important to understand what's it for and what it means. Understanding the cross is a vital aspect of Christian belief. It is essential for us as adults, and it's essential for our children as well, that we understand the cross. You've heard me bang on time and time again. If you want to be a Christian, you have to answer two questions. Who is Jesus, and what did he do? And if you can answer those two questions successfully... You know, we can, we can go somewhere in our discussion because, you know, there, there, there's, there's the ultimate lesson. You have to make your mind up. I can chat with you till the cows come home. I won't argue with you. We can discuss. But you have to answer it. Who then is Jesus? And what did he really do? 
the cross is central to our faith. When Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, that is what he stressed. I read a little bit of it earlier on, although some considered the cross foolishness. When I mean the cross, we're not just talking about the wooden cross. We're talking about the cross with the Christ on. The very Son of God, God in the flesh. God as though he was not man, but he was a man. It's the God-man whose blood was shed and he died on that cross. That's what I'm referring to on the cro- about the, the, when I say the cross. Christ on the cross. Next week we're going to look at resurrection. Praise God, he's not on the cross anymore. Amen? Michael, you're going to be preaching on resurrection. Looking forward to that, although I'll actually be in London so I'll have to listen to it on the internet. <laughs> but, you know... You don't have the cross with a resurrection, without a resurrection. But for some, the cross, you see, the idea of Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross, that's just sheer folly. It's idiotic. doesn't make sense. To others, it's a stumbling block to their faith, as the Bible says. And Paul says he was resolved to focus solely upon the cross as the single thing about Christianity which was absolutely key to their lives. You know, from time to time I meet Christians, I'm sure you've met them as well, You know, and it may be you, so I don't mean to offend you, (laughs) but you know where that person has a little bee in their bonnet about one particular kind of theological or biblical thing? Maybe it's the person who's always talking about the end times, the person who's always talking about, you know, judgment is near, understanding 666 and things like that. You know, I actually think that, you know, that's great, it's good to discuss these things and we, we want to look at it, we want us to understand our Bibles. But there's, if there's one thing we should talk about all the time, it's Jesus who died on a cross for us so that we can spend eternity with him in heaven. Do you know if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? It's not a question just to shrug off and go, oh, I'll think about that sometime. If I was to stand in front of God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Because I went to Weymouth Baptist Church. That won't cut the mustard. Because I got baptized. That won't cut the mustard. Because I gave something in the offering. That won't get you there. Because I was a deacon or an elder or a pastor. That's not right. As we just sang, because of Jesus. That's what it's about. And that's why the cross is so important. The message of of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's why the cross is so important. Jesus died for me. I want to say to you, Jesus died for you. By the end of this service, I would like to think, what are you doing with that then? An understanding of the cross to bring Christians to God. Technically referred to as the atonement 
Of course, some will argue that Jesus' life and his teaching and his empty tomb are equally important, and they are. I have no desire to diminish the importance of any of them. But I'm just wanting to say the cross is so central. See, in the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, it becomes clear from the very beginning that Jesus is on a collision course that will end in his death. And by the time you get to the middle of, say, Mark's gospel, <coughs> Jesus has pointed out that uh, it was his, indeed his purpose to life. If you go on to the next slide, please, we'll just see some of the things that Jesus said here. He began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. It's only halfway through his time with his disciples. But this is the important thing. He wants them to get this. This is what's going to happen. And Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of evil men and they will kill him and after three days he will rise. There's no other way. Mark's Gospel's account of Jesus' arrest, his trials, both before the Jews and the Romans, his humiliation, his crucifixion, his death, is the climax of the Gospel. If you ever read Mark's Gospel, you realise there's only 16 chapters, and eight of them are about the last week of his life. (laughs) And two of them are just about the last few hours. Climaxes. This is how important it is. This is what it's been building up to. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem because he knew that there he was to die. And during that last week he spent time with his disciples preparing them for his death and explaining to them using simple elements like bread and wine as they reflected back on that Passover which we looked at as part of this series, isn't it? This is my body that's going to be broken for you. This is my blood that is poured out for you. From which we derive the most central element of our Christian worship. That sharing of communion. Thinking of the one who died for us. Well... I want to look a little bit at the cross, a little bit more. One of the things associated with Jesus shedding his blood is the establishing of covenants, isn't it? We've seen that. A new agreement with humanity, something which the Old Testament had been pointing to through uh, the covenants, through the exodus, through the sacrifices in the temple worship and the kings, the things that we've gone through. And uh, Jeremiah particularly kind of... Uh, went on, if we have the next one there I think it may not be the next one no, no, it's not the next one, I've just got it down here Jeremiah quotes it, doesn't he what does he say, let's remind ourselves the days are coming, says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with my people Yeah, that's how he prophesied, isn't it, it wasn't this, none of the old one, it's going to go this new one's going to come a covenant where I will make uh, with the people of Israel and I will write the, my law on their hearts and on their minds, I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Pointing forward to this new covenant that we find in Christ. Because in the ancient world, covenants were usually sealed in blood. There was a, a way that that it was a binding agreement. Even today, we look at 
covenants. We take covenants. They're like treaties. Treaties between nations. And we've seen how difficult it is this week to get out of a treaty between nations. It's not simply a vote, is it? (laughs) The ramifications are going to go on for, I don't know, how long? Marriage is a covenant. And God takes those vows seriously and we should and bless our newlyweds as they got married last Sunday. It's a covenant not to be broken. They're binding as we make promises. God shows his seriousness when he establishes his covenant by wanting to demonstrate how serious he takes it. And here this new covenant is going to be sealed in the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. The time of Apostle Paul, when his time came, some say 30 years, we don't know exactly, say 30 years after the life of Jesus. Christians were ready to look back and see, look what happened to Jesus. And then let's try, try, what what does that all mean? And in a variety of models and thoughts and patterns and pictures, in a sense, came to help them understand. And nothing could be more important for us than to explain this cross his, his death in order that we might truly experience forgiveness and freedom. So I want to briefly share with you, and I've done this before some time ago, share with you some of what are classically known as some of the views of atonement. <coughs> Get ready for a roller coaster. Right, there is, you know, we've had four phases in a sense of God's r- redemption plan. Well, I'm going to share with you four of the classic models of salvation. We just say, um, are you saved? I remember. Don, do you remember a guy called... Oh, I've forgotten his name now. <laughs> Never mind. Lecturer I met at college. I've forgotten his name. White. Remember, his name was White. Can't he said, guess my denomination. And I was kind of an obnoxious younger man. Uh, and I said, I don't care what denomination you are. Are you saved? Is what I said. Because <laughs> that's really what matters. Whatever your background, whatever the colour of your church or your flag that you're waving, my friend, I want to know if you're saved. I want to see you in heaven. And I want to share with you these pictures of salvation. The first one is Jesus is the sacrifice. We call it substitution. It comes first, not because it's the most important or the only one, but I just believe that it lays the foundation of everything else. It deals with some of the most basic things of our human needs, of forgiveness, of coming to know God. And when Paul uh, wrote to the Romans, he was faced with a divided church of both Gentiles and Jewish believers, and he wrote how God, who is (coughs) completely holy and completely just, is angry with our sin. Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul's first task for them was to show that everyone had fallen short of God's standard and we have sinned. And since God is just such sin must be punished and dealt with. It doesn't turn a blind eye. It doesn't sweep it under the carpet. 
Justice doesn't allow that. In ancient societies, including the, New, the Old Testament times, there was a substitute that was allowed to stand between them and their God. And that was how the Old Testament, how the whole sacrificial worship system began. It was a substitute. This lamb that was going to be killed would represent the person, the family, the nation. We saw it, didn't we? The lambs that were killed when we looked at temple worship. Hundreds of years later, John the Baptist comes saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as he points to Jesus Christ. This is this one thread through the story, gospel, through the Bible. This Lamb of God, you get to the end of the book, (laughs) the end of the story, where is the Lamb that was slain, sitting on a throne and being worshipped by all. Hallelujah. The Lamb of God. And Paul is saying this when he writes to the Romans. This substitute is Jesus. Jesus became the sacrifice at that cross. And God himself was punishing wrongdoing while at the same time maintaining his own righteousness and giving and acquitting us. You see, instead of condemning us, instead of condemning humanity for our sin, God now looks at us and declares us righteous. Let me read to you. They're probably on the screen, is it? No, go on to the next verse. This righteousness is from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believes. You see, we are unrighteous, we are sinful, but there is a righteousness from God that he wants to give us. And how does it come? To all who believe. This is going to be an important phrase. Hold on to this when we get to the end. To those who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. For God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Later in the book of Romans, he'll say how we are helpless and powerless. While we were still helpless and powerless, Christ died for us in our sinful state. Go on into the book of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10, and there you see it develop, this model where Jesus is both the high priest looking for the sacrifice, carrying out the sacrifice, but also is the sacrifice. (coughs) I'm not going to ask you to make a show of hands, but whoever has been caught guilty and been fined for something, few hands going up. I didn't ask you to show them. You know me. I've, I, I ended up with a criminal record when I was a young lad. And um, I got caught. Best thing that ever happened to me was getting caught. I tried to get away with it. When you try and get away with something, you think it's dealt with and it's never dealt with. Justice has not been carried out. We're getting caught. I got found out. I got exposed. I made me more rebellious. But actually, in the end, it softened my heart to realize what God was doing. But I began to realize that when I've got, I'm guilty for something and you're in court and you're found out for it, then that judge who is 
demanding this payment is perfectly just in doing that. That's what justice does. And I, at the age of 18, 19, had to pay that fine. And that kind of criminal record hangs around with you. You know, you go on to university, you have to kind of admit this is what you've got. I was training to be a teacher, not that I really wanted to be a teacher at the time, but uh, you have to admit it on every form. You know, it goes on for years. There are consequences for sin for all of us, isn't there? What if I'd had someone who just stepped in and said, I want to pay it for you. Because that's what Jesus does with our sin in this picture here. A holy God in his justice demands that sin is dealt with. There is a punishment. But the same God is the one who pays that punishment for you. That's how beautiful this is. This model of substitution. Jesus died for me. Should have been me on that cross. For my sin. But he took my place. You know, that's why I love him. Not because he says he loves me. Not because he he does nice things or I get nice blessings and warm fuzzy feelings. But actually... He took my place and I'm declared not guilty forever. God deals with human sin which which he is angry and he offers the possibility of forgiveness and peace and friendship. And the cross of Christ, you see, removes that barrier that is between us. Now, many Christians regard this as a foundation uh, understanding of the cross as it highlights so many facets of what Jesus achieved. And it does. However, the model has also been caricatured. And I want to name names here because you all read these books. I want you to know that the likes of Steve Chalk in some of his writings and the likes of Rob Bell in some of his stuff, if you read American stuff, they have written this stuff that actually Jesus dying on the cross was like child abuse. And I want to tell you that that is totally wrong. Right? Because when you start thinking that if it's child abuse, the father taking it out on the son, we totally misunderstood the personhood of the father and the personhood of the son and the unity within the Trinity. And look at these words of Jesus. If we can go on, please. Look, if, hopefully on this on the screen. No, it's not on there. No, but just hold on to that one there. These words of Jesus. You know, it wasn't the, the, the father, in a sense, demanding punishment out of his son. Jesus said this, No one takes it, it meaning his life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. Jesus, our God, is both the, the, the judge that demands justice and the willing victim. You'll hear me pray. When I thank God, I will say, thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to die for us. But it doesn't stop there. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, that you came willingly to die for us. 
It's not an angry God saying, what am I going to do with these? It's a God of love within himself who says, I can deal with this. Well, Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our reconciler. Paul, in his letter to 2 Corinthians, uh, develops this. Because he was in a relationship with the church in Corinth. And you have to say that it was a pretty difficult church, actually. I don't know if you've ever been in a difficult church. You know? I certainly, as a pastor, we know churches at times can be difficult. Well, for Paul, the church at Corinth was a difficult place. He loved them to bits. I mean, he was really proud of them, but there were some difficulties going on there. Uh, and this is one of the things he wrote to them. He wrote, there's this key understanding of the cross. And I have to tell you, I often will say, these are my favourite verses. These are. <laughs> right? um, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen? Right? The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God. I can't take credit for it. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus. Not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore, what are we? Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you. I implore you today on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And here it comes. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Hallelujah. I love that passage. I re- oh, it just speaks so much. This is what my God has done. And he says, now you're my ambassador. <laughs> yeah. Just as the case of Paul and his relationship with the church in Corinth was strained, <laughs> so our relationship with God, between God and humanity, had been broken God comes and he sends his son who dies on his cross to bring his people back into that relationship with him. We all know how mending and renewing broken relationships is important. Forgiveness is so important. Christ is our reconciler. He is our sacrifice. Thirdly, he is our conqueror. Jesus, Christus Victus, as Don reminded me when we had lunch the other day, going back to our theological statements, you know. Here is Christ the victor. When Paul wrote, different book, we looked at Romans, we looked at 2 Corinthians, different pictures of the cross coming out. Now in Colossians, he wants about demonstrating that Christ is supreme over everything. Supreme over all of nature. Over all religious fear and tyranny and demonic forces and everything. And in majestic language, Paul uh, just lays out exactly who Jesus is in his relationship to Almighty God. And remember how it was way back in week one when we started this series. I went to the book of Colossians. 
It showed how Jesus was there at creation. He brought it about. He holds it together. He was there. In Colossians 1, Paul writes how Jesus not only existed before the beginning, but even participated in that creation itself and holds that creation and its continuance together and recognizes, however, that all is not well between God and his creation. Jesus comes and reconciled everything to God the Father through cross by bringing peace, by defeating the enemy. Paul explains in Colossians, read these verses, chapter 2. God made you alive with Christ. Hallelujah. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulation that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities. He's talking about spiritual powers and authorities, demonic powers. He's crushing that head of that serpent as it said in Genesis 3 he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross isn't Jesus great? fantastic we know all our sins our shortcomings, our failures have been nailed to the cross evil powers, demonic powers don't have their authority over us We're in Christ Jesus. And I'm not denying that we're not in a battle. Of course we are. There's a spiritual battle. But the war's been won. The war's been won. And I'm going to get on with time because we want to spend some time in worship as we dwell on this. Jesus not just our conqueror, not just our reconciler, not just our substitute. He's our rescuer, our redeemer. Remember the story of the Exodus when God's people were set free from slavery in Egypt. Paul wrote how Jesus would free us by taking away our sin that was like a bondage to us. Just as they were slaves in Egypt, we were slaves to sin. Something good was brought out of evil. Something had to be paid to purchase our freedom. In the story of that exodus, there was the lamb's blood on the doorpost. That was the evidence that an agreement, a deal had been made. For our salvation, there's the lamb of God on a cross. Purchasing our freedom, redeeming us, paying the ransom. He paid to secure your freedom from bondage. Then why are you still in bondage today? Live the life God wants you to. Call on His name. Even if we have little experience of the things I'm talking about, you must be able to see that a Christian is someone who knows what freedom is, who knows what forgiveness is, who knows what it means to be in a new relationship with God. We may not be able to plummet the whole depths of all of these, but we can at least scratch the surface and say, yes, I want some more. 
What a great salvation. What a great Savior. And of course, we never forget the resurrection. You can't conclude without the resurrection. Jesus wasn't just a martyr or a hero who just died. He rose again, didn't he? He rose again. Triumph. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The cross and the empty tomb. Remember years ago, I was with Joe and Jonathan. We were off to a Baptist minister's meeting uh, that I have to admit was absolutely dire. <laughs> we were driving around a town. I can't remember which one it was. They're usually kind of Andover or Newbury, something, one of those ones where they have these minute meetings. And um, there was a cross. And Jesus was on the cross. And Joe shouts out the window, He's not on the cross anymore! <laughs> How true that is. Jesus died on the cross, but he's not there. He's risen. He has risen. We're going to look at that wonderful resurrection. Well, I want to close here with this idea. You see, each of those things that we've looked at, those pictures of salvation, that's, salvation covers all of that. That's what that term salvation covers. Being rescued, being redeemed, being conquered, being set free, being reconciled, having a sacrifice that was my substitute. That's my salvation. This is what Jesus has done for us. And it looks at sin and deals with sin in many different ways. Uh, and, and actually, we just jump on to the next one, please. Because would the band come up and join me? We started here with these four phases of God's big picture. Creation. The loving God who created a world, but man fell into his sin. But God's plan was always to redeem his creation, his people, by the sending of his son to die on a cross and rise again. We knew the story didn't end there because it ends in eternity where there's the total restoration of God's plan and God's kingdom in its fullness. Now, I don't know if you've seen those symbols below. Anyone familiar with them? Four little symbols that we often use. I think they started from a child evangelism program. Where you just wanted to show God loves you. That's why he created you. He loves you. But you have sinned and done something wrong. But God sent Jesus. And if you want to be part of that restoration, there's a question. Do you believe? See, that status that we get to be in Christ. How did I say it? That phrase you need to remember? To all who believed, who put their faith in him, then you're included in the great restoration. It's going to happen anyway. Are we part of it or not? Do you know for certain? That if you died today, you'd go to heaven. If you don't know the answer to that, please come and talk with me. Why don't we stand, please? We're going to sing and we're going to worship. I just want us to worship 
Jesus and all that he's done for us. Let's stand. Father God.